Hi, everyone. You may or may not be aware that September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that that is a topic, a subject that is very close to my heart and my professional experience. The new book, Touching Two Worlds, of course, talks a lot about my experience losing my brother to suicide and what that looked like for me and for my family. I have recently written a piece in Entrepreneur magazine, although I guess it's not really in print much anymore, but in Entrepreneur, about the unique suicide risks that entrepreneurs may have. This is not to say that entrepreneurs are categorically at elevated risk over other folks for suicide. That's not really true. But I do think there are some unique characteristics of entrepreneur psychology that make them uniquely vulnerable in some ways. One of those traits is, of course, one of the wonderful traits about entrepreneurs, which is a bias toward action. And that we will talk about a lot in this episode. I'm talking with Rob about what he's learned about successful entrepreneurs over the years that he's been running Tiny Seed. So bias toward action is one of those amazing strengths in entrepreneurs, but it can be actually somewhat problematic when someone is in the midst of a mental health crisis because the tendency to act on those feelings, the the tendency to push instead of wait can have some really horrible, horrible outcomes when it comes to working with painful feelings and suicidal ideation. So anyway, I know it's a super heavy topic, but I think it's a really important one. If you are interested in, you know, some of the the deeper clinical elements of entrepreneur mental health, totally recommend checking out that article. You can find it by Googling Sherry Walling and entrepreneur. And I will also put a link to the article in the show notes. So as I mentioned, my guest today is none other than the very original Rob Walling. And we talked together about his experience running Tiny Seed. They're getting ready to take applications for another batch. And so I got really curious about what he's learned about entrepreneur psychology and success in the years that he's been running the Accelerator. So I think it's a pretty interesting topic for anyone who is thinking about how to perform at their best and what kinds of traits to emphasize or to work on coaching within themselves. One small personal request before we jump into that interview, you probably know I released a book. It's called Touching Two Worlds. And if you have ever sold anything on the internet, you know that reviews are king. And especially for authors, we sort of worship at the altar of Amazon. So if you would be willing to take a moment and leave a review for Touching Two Worlds on Amazon, that would be super, super helpful. It, it actually is kind of a numbers game. So um, I don't like asking for things, but really that would be super, super helpful. So please do it. Thank you very much. And let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, 
And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Yeah, I know you're really stressed out about, you know, being on a podcast. Too much caffeine. <laughs> it's just like an unfamiliar experience to you. Are there any like uh, tools or tactics or strategies that I can give you for making this podcast experience easier? What would make this podcast a win for me? Are you ever asked that when <laughs> oh you go on a show? Gosh, and I'm always yeah. like, I, I don't know. I'm I here just know. to have a good conversation. <laughs> I want I've been doing so many podcasts lately because of the book launch, and I have a real appreciation for people who run their podcasts really thoughtfully, like they run their businesses, or like I presume they run their businesses. Because it's it's been super interesting to see no shows and multiple reschedules and like clear lack of preparation. And they're interviewing you. Yeah. Yeah. It's for their show and it feels super unprofessional, huh? And you're like, what type of, we just have an expectation that you're going to show up, you're going to be prepared, you're going to have some knowledge of who I am and what I've done, right? Yeah. It's more like, oh, valuing your own time and, and my time, hopefully, but like really valuing your time. Like, so anyway, it's interesting to see. And then of course there are many, many podcast hosts that are so thoughtful and have great systems and are really present and just on top of it. And that's what makes it like a really valuable conversation. I agree. There are more who are on top of it than not. Oh, absolutely. I've had people take it too far where it almost feels like they send me a big, they give me a bunch of homework. They're like, come on my podcast. And I'm like, great. And knowing that, like, if you need a headshot, just Google headshots, go to my website. Like, there's plenty of places to find headshots. If you need a bio, there's one in my about page. Go to Wikipedia. Like, there's bios all over. Like, just pick one, you know? But I'll get an email and it's like, hey, can you please fill out our guest form? And I go and I have literally, like, responded sometimes and said, I don't think I'm a fifth of this podcast because I'm not filling this out. And it wasn't just a bio and a headshot, but it's like, what are three things that you want to cover in there? What are, what are ways that make this a win? Where do you, you know, it's like 10, a 10 question survey. Like they want you to do the interview for them. Yeah. They want me to do the work. Which I think really shows you what kind of podcast it is in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, the podcasters who are really able to drop in and have a thoughtful conversation, either because they've done the preparation or maybe they haven't done a lot of preparation, but they're just really skilled at that versus the ones who it feels like the podcast exists really to sell, treat every interaction as if it's sort of a marketing strategy. Yeah. Like it's a factory floor Yeah, and it's just churning through content. And it's like, that doesn't feel, you're just trying to get ad inventory. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. I'm not sure. But in any event, we're not going to do that on this podcast. You didn't have to fill out anything. It was quite an onerous form you had me fill out. And if uh, if I need a headshot, I'll just <laughs> sneak into your room in the middle of the night. That's not going to be a good headshot. No. Me sleeping. I wouldn't do that. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is your work with Tiny Seed. You have a new applications for a new batch go live next week. And for folks who haven't listen to the podcast much or maybe don't know who you are, it'd be great to hear a little bit about what Tiny Seed is. But I think your experience running an accelerator gives lots of insight into kind of what you've observed or what you've learned about high-functioning founders or, or folks that you are willing to make bets on. So reeling it back, maybe tell us a little bit about what Tiny Seed is. Yeah, Tiny Seed is the first startup accelerator for SaaS bootstrappers. And it helps an accelerator for folks who haven't heard of that. It's like Y Combinator, uh, Techstars, 500 Startups. It's a 
place where we've raised a venture fund and founders can apply and then they go through, as you said, an application process and then we wind up picking, depends on geographically where we are, but between 10 and 20 companies per batch and we run uh, two batches per year. And then they go through like a year-long curriculum. There's a community, we have mentors and all that. So it's the idea is of an accelerator is to accelerate the growth of a company. And why do companies want to be part of an accelerator? What's in it for them? There's a few things. And what's interesting is accelerator valuations, when they invest, are lower than if you go to angels, if you go to most VCs. But accelerators offer a ton of value that is not just the money, right? It's not just the funding. We have startup curriculum to help people learn the ins and outs of funnels and sales and marketing. We have weekly calls with mentors like yourself and Rand Fishkin, Heat and Shaw, you know, all the, just a a lot of SaaS luminaries. And we have uh, masterminds that we set people up into. So every other week they're on calls. And we do in-person retreats twice a year. It's it's really a, a thought through curriculum. There's a lot of scaffolding and there's just a lot of interaction versus going and raising around on the open market. And then you're kind of on your own at that point. People often say, oh, well, it's the money, like the money's valuable, but frankly, most of our companies, probably the majority, don't actually need the money. You know, they, they, they can get money through revenue-based financing or they've been profitable enough that they don't need, need the money. The money's nice, but it's everything around the money that actually makes an accelerator so different. It's such a, you know, it's such a unique offering compared to other ways that startups can try to accelerate growth. So part of the role that you play as the, the owner of the accelerator, co-owner, is to try to figure out which companies you think you can help accelerate, which companies you want to make the bet on, which companies you think are going to be successful. And how many companies have you evaluated over the last few years? Several thousand. I don't know an exact number. Probably north of 3,000. Yeah, 2,500, 3,000. It's a lot. And, you know, even before that, right, I've evaluated a lot of companies to angel invest in or via microconf or whatever. But yeah, just within tiny seed of seeing true, like digging into numbers and actually interviewing founders and having conversations, it's, it's a lot. And of the companies that you've evaluated, obviously you're evaluating the company, but you're also evaluating the people. You're trying to assess whether there are people that you want to work with, that you want to invest in, that you, you, frankly, you want to spend a lot of time with, whether there are people that you believe can follow through. What stands out to you as some of the, the themes that you've noticed in founders that you're really drawn toward? Founders that you're like, you know, I, I really want to spend time or double down, invest in what you're doing. I like the way you put that, where you said you have to pick which founders you can help because multiple times I have told my co-founder and our program director where we're talking through, should we fund this company? We're on the fence. And I have said, I'm just not sure how I'm going to be able to help this company. Like they're B2C, they are in a space that I'm completely unfamiliar. They're doing hardware. You know, there's something that's just, they have enough traction and I like the founders, but like they're just far enough, not in our wheelhouse of like, I don't know how I accelerate their growth, right? So that's, I think the first thing is we, I think all of us tend to be pretty, choosy in that we do want to pick founders and companies that we believe we can actually help. Otherwise, there's no, it just doesn't feel fair, right? To make an investment, pull them in something and then be like, well, I don't really know B2C, so I can't really give you advice. You know, that, that seems silly. But to answer your, your actual question, which is, you're almost asking, like, how do you evaluate companies? Like, how do you kind of... Well, I'm differentiating between the company and the founder because I, th- I think they're different questions to some extent. 
Absolutely. And there's a like the simple bullet point answer that I give when I'm asked on like a short interview is three P's. It's the people, price, sensitivity, and product market fit. And obviously the people is what you're asking about, you know, is the is the team itself. Yep, I'm yep. first P. <laughs> With founders, there are several things that we see that like leads to more success. One is a bias for action. And I can tell you this, I don't assess this during an interview, but once we start working with founders, oftentimes we'll have a strategy meeting and it's like, well, we don't know what to do. And it's like, all right, let's hash this out. And we come to the end and it's like, it's a big decision, but it seems like you're leaning in that direction. And that seems reasonable to remove credit card before a trial or to make some big pricing change. Some founders, three days later, they're like, oh, here's my new pricing page with the new pricing. What do you think of it? And then three days later, they're like in the tiny seat slack talking about, hey, I'm about to make this change. What do others think? Other founders, two weeks after we have that initial conversation, get back to me and they're like, hey, I'm still thinking about the pricing. You know, and then a month later, it's like they're letting the lizard brain or they're letting resistance, because it's scary, right? Changing pricing, removing credit, these big strategic changes, they're scary. And so a bias towards waiting and analysis versus a bias towards getting things done quickly. In a startup, a week is like a month and a month is like a quarter, Right, compared to a, a normal company. That's an old, it's like you have to move really fast, especially in those early days. How do you differentiate a bias towards action from impulsivity, which is a personality trait that I've seen in a lot of entrepreneurs and I think can be pretty dangerous to the well-being of a company? Right, and those are the, those are the two sides of that coin. Right, that's impulsivity is the shadow side. Yep. It's the like place that can go badly. And everything we'll talk about today in terms of founder positive founder traits, they have if you take them too far in another direction, they have the you know the the shadow side. I mean, we've backed now, you know, between your and my private investments and tiny seed companies, I'm over 100 companies that I'm involved in. So, seen a lot and 150 founders or something across those. So, seen a lot and absolutely have worked with the the impulsive founders, some of which have clinical ADHD, and they say that, and they're, they're trying to control it, but they're just all over the place, right? And the difference between a bias towards action, I think, and impulsivity or being scattered is the difference between efficiency and effectiveness, where like you can be efficient by just getting a ton of stuff done, and I have the to-do list, and I'm cranking through my email, and I'm just doing everything fast, but you're not actually working on the right things. And so to me, the bias towards action is that you figure out what the right things are. And that's a whole that's a whole piece of the conversation we could get to. Well, how do you do that? Right? That's usually the next question. But it's the founders who I see who have that bias towards action, they they are pretty strategic in how they think and they they narrow the scope of the number of things they're working on and they focus on the things that are gonna move the needle or that they think are gonna move the needle, and they're right more often than not. And that's a developed skill. And I think we get that by being exposed. I've gotten it by being exposed to other founders who are really good at it, you know? And you know the people who, who, whose names I would drop here, who I do monthly mastermind with, or who I've just been around through microcomps and watched how they think and watch how they run companies, you know, and how they make decisions. And frankly, I think part of it is just being exposed to them through osmosis, but I think other parts are reaching out and actually asking for help, right? It's asking, it's saying like, I have a huge decision to make. I don't know which, which of these three things I should be working on. Get some input from knowledgeable people. So the, the difference in a way between bias towards action and impulsivity is intention or strategy, right? It's like using those executive function in a direction and being ready to act, but not acting for action's sake, acting with deep intention. That's right. I've heard the analysis of like, are we playing chess or are we playing checkers? Chess is like a deep strategy, very mentally challenging game. And 
Checkers is fine, but it's just like you're moving pieces around. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of learning a bunch of tactics from podcasts or from conferences and then trying to stack tactics. And that that's fine. That can work to a certain extent. But having an overarching strategy of like, this is really the vision. This is really the strategy where we're going and that informs everything else. I think is something that that the best founders learn. They don't you don't know it intuitively. None of us know this intuitively, but it's learning from those who've come before us. So you've got a bias to action as one of one of these key indicators that you look for or just have learned makes a founder that you like to invest in. What else? What else goes in that list? I think a second thing is something I already said, but it's like working on the mostly working on the right things most of the time. Not all the time because you're going to have to take some gambles, but founders who I see fail even if they're doing a lot of things, two thirds, three quarters of them are just things that you're like, what, why are you, why are you tweeting right now? Instead of like cold calling a customer, like, why are you redesigning your website again, rather than just rewriting the copy this time? It's almost like procrast- entrepreneur procrastination. And so the opposite of that, where it's like, I'm, I'm really working on the things that are going to move the needle. I'm changing that headline. I'm moving my pricing. I'm doing the hard things that often we don't want to do as founders because they're grindy. You know, it's like grinding it. How do you think people cultivate that? So I'm just, I guess I'm thinking of folks who are listening and you're giving all these great, you know, be this, be this, be this. These are great parts of the recipe. How do people cultivate being someone who works on the right things? That's like we said before, it's you have to, I think, the way I learned it was by being around people who worked on the right things. Because 15 years ago, I would work long hours and I would work mostly on not the right things, but I put in so many hours that eventually I did enough right things that some things worked out, right? The early apps. I mean, the you know, you remember the duck boats and the the wedding toolbox and you know, I mean these these early apps, I just invested a like if I were running those today, I would spend a quarter of the time that I used to. But I just didn't know any better. You know, I didn't know which 75% of my time was wasted. The way I learned that was by starting to go to microconfs and by being around like talented founders. Jason Cohen, Ahit and Shaw, Ruben Gomez, Jordan Gall, who I, you watch and you're just like, oh, why don't, why aren't they doing all this stuff? Like they aren't doing all this other stuff that I am. And maybe it's a waste of time. I think I hear in that also coachability, right? This sort of commitment to learning and like being self-reflective enough to evaluate the outcomes that you're going for. Like just being able to really analyze yourself, what you're doing, and seek new input, new data, new experience. Yeah, coachability was another point I was going to make, was like being able to take advice, and even if it flies in the face of what you want to do, because, yeah, it's like knowing yourself, I think self-reflection is a big issue. And some of the founders I know who just can't, they just can't get there, stumble over the same things over and over, and they don't see it in themselves. They don't see that they're self-sabotaging. And I think that's part of it. And then coachability is a separate but related thing. So if, you're, if you don't have self-reflection or self-awareness and you're not coachable, it's like, it's really bad. And you're kind of almost going to luck into... Right, if you're successful, there's a lot of luck in that situation. Yeah, versus, you know, let's think of, a, again, a group of founders who we know that are like really successful. It's like, they usually know themselves pretty well. And usually, even though they're really smart, they'll ring me up and be like, hey, I need advice on this thing. And sometimes I'm like, you know, you probably know more about this than I do. And that person says, yeah, but I'm trying to talk to like four or five smart people who just help me find the blind spots. And it's like, whoa, you're, you're not looking to make yourself feel smart. You're just looking for the right answer or the best answer. There's no ego attached to this decision. You just want the right result because you want to work on the right things. I admire that. Are there traits that 
seem very positive, but maybe over time you've come to see that they can be problematic. Yeah. I think one one continuum that I'll touch on is like optimism versus pessimism. You can be successful as an optimist or as a pessimist, but if you go too far in either direction, you lose it. If you're too pessimistic, then everything's going to fail. You're kind of like Eeyore and you just you either don't do a lot of things or you don't do them wholehearted. There's too much negativity. Like that's not a good thing. But likewise, the founders who are super, super optimistic, oh man, my pipeline is huge. I got all this stuff coming through. And you're just like, yeah, you're not, you're out of touch with reality. You're too far in that direction. So at first, to be honest, the optimism, the extreme optimism feels like it's energy and this founder's motivated and they're really positive and they're excited. And then you'll watch it over time and you'll be like, huh, but you need to temper that with actually looking at what's happening. Like you're not closing any of these sales. Look at the data. Yeah. You've been talking about these pipeline for six months and you've closed no sales. So like, that's a problem. So I think that, you know, touches on something that seems positive. Which I imagine would be sort of hard to assess in an, in an interview or as you're assessing these companies and with their applications and the interview process. It is something that kind of comes out over time. Although I guess you also can always look at the gap between data and attitude. Yeah. One way we look at the progress of a company over the, let's say the prior six months before they applied. So we're like, are they actually making progress or is revenue flat or growing? And then I think I found it like in an interview, you can kind of tell if someone's BSing you or, or like they talk up a bunch of stuff and then they're like, you just ask the hard questions of like, so what is actually closed? What have you actually closed in the last three months, right? You just start digging in. And there's two things that drive me nuts in an interview. And Anar and I, my co-founder, do them together. And I'll just see him, because I do most of the talking, right? Podcaster, so I'm interviewing. And I'll just see his countenance change as he sees me like starting to boil. But someone who can't answer a direct question and they continue to talk around it where they're like optimistic about the pipeline. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Love to hear about the pipeline. So tell me what sales you've closed in the past three months. Okay, so what we're doing is, you know, and it's just complete redirection. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna ask you one more time because I think maybe you didn't hear me. Like, And I'll ask the same question. And if they blow me off twice, I'm like, pass. Like I cannot, I can't work with someone who can't do that. The other thing that drives me nuts, we do these, tw- they're 20 minute, 25 minute interviews. So they're pretty tight. And I have spent with a couple founders, 10 to 12 minutes of that interview, just trying to get them to explain their business. Like, I'm not quite sure, like I can see you having revenue and it's like, is this a, are you a software company or is it more consulting? And then it's like three minutes. Who pays you and why? Yep. And then it's like, okay, so we have these, uh, we have the provider and we have the this and that. And I'm like, okay, so who's the, prov- what's the provider? Like, what do we, you know, and then I'll ask it again. Okay. And it's like, no, you have to be able to explain this. Invented language is one of my pet peeves that is similar. It's a little bit different, but like when people create like provider, they create all of these names for the different components of their business. And I'm like, okay, I talked to lots of founders about lots of companies and I generally have a footprint for how things work. But when you make up terms, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's really frustrating. You have to define the term, make up the term, but like define it the first time or the second time, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, I think that inability to communicate clearly, whether it's intentional or unintentional, right? Whether you're not telling me about your pipeline because it's not good news or whether you just don't have the self-awareness, that's a problem. And that's, that tends to be a, for me, it's like a strike against, but that, and that's same with hiring, right? If I were hiring a developer or hiring an ops person, like I need them to be able to communicate clearly. Otherwise a five minute conversation is 25 minutes. 
It's the same with parenting too. Isn't did it? you or did you not do your chores? I I don't want to diatribe about the philosophy of dishwashing. I want to know, did you or did you not? So do Karl your Marx talked about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and you're like, no, <laughs> stop with the dietribe. Are they clean? Can I eat off the plate? We don't have a kid that nope. does that at all. Okay. Marches in your footsteps for sure. <laughs> That's not my fault. I'm a very direct communicator. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for chatting with me about the things that you've learned about founders over time. And good luck with the new batch. How many in are you at this point? How many batches? I don't know. This is probably six. You kind of stop counting, right? We do two a year now. Yeah, I just asked you a really direct question. And you're six. like, I don't know. <laughs> probably six. I think it's like six. Yeah. Okay. So, but I, I want to ask you, I guess the same question. Like you talk to a lot of founders and you see founders succeeding and failing or struggling. And like, what's, you know, maybe one characteristic that you feel like is you see a lot in the founders who you see succeeding. And then maybe one, one thing that you've noticed in folks who, who struggle more. I'll say something that is maybe not in the top three most obvious things, but it's something that I've seen over time become very powerful. And that is the way that founders engage their key relationships especially their relationships with like a co-founder or key members of their team. I've seen kindness be really, really destructive because it prevents key conversations from happening. It keeps people in a business much longer than they should be in a business. It, it just prevents the business from growing and being supported by all of the members of the team. And sometimes it's because the founder just cannot have difficult conversations. And that is really destructive over time for the business. Yeah, big time. It's over kindness, right? Because just being kind is a like, oh, my team member's sick or they lost a loved one. It's over kindness. Yeah, it's kindness at the cost of the function of the business. And similarly, people who are not kind, who are ruthless, who are so transactional or so based on the outcome of you know a certain task, that they lose any kind of ability to motivate or engage other people. So I think it can, you know, it's one of those things where you have to find balance, that the relationships within the business exist to serve the well-being of the business. And when they get out of calibration, I think that's a very much a, a personal characteristic, how someone engages in relationships. So I think that's a really important one that I've seen be really powerful. Yeah, I totally see that. There's a lot of talk about that. Have you heard about Patty McCord at Netflix and how she and the founder Reed, whoever his name, not Reed Hoffman, he's LinkedIn, but the two of them came up with the, it's like, we're a team, not a family. Like expectation is that we are a ball team or a, you know, whatever sports metaphor. And if you're the right person for the right position, then you play. And if you're not, you know, you maybe go on the bench or we have to let you go. And that sounds maybe ruthless to some. It's not. Oh, I think it's perfect. <laughs> yep. Because you and I both seen folks running companies for years like, oh, we're a family and we're all... The and then and then the moment you have to let... You don't let someone go and everyone's like, grumble, 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 like this person's really dragging morale down. Or you do let them go and it's this huge like, you said we were a family. You can't fire your brother. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could do a whole podcast episode about that. But that's absolutely an imperative perspective. Well... You got things to do. I do indeed. Thank you so much for having me on. 
folks want to keep up with me on Twitter, I'm at Rob Walling. And obviously, if you're interested in Tiny Seed and applying, if they're if your founder, SaaS founder doing, I'd say between 1,000 and 30,000 MRR, head to tinyseed.com slash apply on Monday. And if you are interested in investing in ambitious B2B SaaS founders, head to tinyseed.com slash invest. We have a syndicate where we put out a deal every month or two right now. It was, it was more before the economic downturn, but now, you know, maybe not the best time to raise funding. But we are running syndicate deals periodically and we'll obviously be raising future funds. So I'd love to hear from you at tinyc.com slash invest. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.